This podcast was recorded on April 29th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. We're here today, April 29th, 2020, in morning LA time. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have another special guest, a returning guest, Ken Shinoda, Portfolio Manager of the non-agency RMBS market here at DoubleLine. Welcome, Ken. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us on this uh, remote thing. Uh, here today is uh, day 41 of our quarantine here in the safe at home. Um, and we continue to grind along and uh, continue to do these weekly podcasts to keep people apprised of the market. So, Ken, we want to talk. Reason we brought you on today, we want to talk about some of the policies that have transpired um, uh, for the uh, mortgage market and some of the spillover effects that we're going to see there. But before we do, I uh, want to update everybody on the market. So, uh, Sam, do you want to start us off with your weekly roundup of what's shaking in the markets today? Sounds good. And let's just start with the flash on markets. And what I'll do is I'll provide the month to date followed by the year to date for respective markets. So starting with the S&P 500, uh, pretty big week. It was up about 5% for uh, since we last spoke, putting it on the month to date of up 11%. And if you look at the year, year to date basis, it's still down 11%. On the Barclays US bond aggregate, we're up about 2% for the month, up five for the year. Gold's uh, Front month futures were up 8% and 12% respectively for copper. Dr. Copper, it's up 5% on the month, down 16% on a year-to-date basis. And hey, look at WTI crude oil futures. Uh, it's, it's, it's a positive number that we have you know, versus that negative. But unfortunately, month-to-date, still down 40% and 80% on a year-to-date basis. In terms of spreads, uh, we saw basically an unch over a previous week on IG cash bond spreads, high yield, out about 15 basis points to 775 and emerging markets uh, out about 10 basis points to 510. In terms of uh, sovereign yields across the board, pretty much unchanged over last week, so I'm not going to repeat those. And for moving on to the economic roundup, uh, we had a big uh, number today come out on um, GDP for first quarter advanced estimates. This is the first estimate, but what we saw on a quarter over quarter seasonally, seasonally adjusted annualized rate of negative 4.8%. This is versus a positive 2.1% previous quarter. Again, those are annualized rates based on quarter over quarter data. The next estimates due to be released on May 28th, and I presume that's going to push the GDP number down lower than what we saw today. Yeah, I also on that note, Sam, I want to point out, too, that, um, you know, as we get in these unprecedented times and we look at some of this economic data, what you see, what I what jumped out of me in that GDP report, besides the number, is the personal consumption component, right? When you look at that on an annualized seasonally adjusted basis, 
all that uh, mumbo jumbo in front of it, down 7.6% for the quarter. And remember that the virus and the shutdown policies really didn't happen until, let's call it a third of the way or maybe halfway through March. And so if that's any indication of how things will look uh, for the month of April, as we sit here and only a couple of states are back opening uh, this week, um, I just have to think that that number is going to be much, much worse as we see the second quarter number as well on the consumption side. I just don't see people out there um, outside of consuming for their own, um, you know, trying to uh, buy groceries and feed their families right now. It's going to be challenging to see people going out there buying things. You see that in the in the home sales data as well. Pending home sales went down 20% month over month as well. So <laughs> I find this interesting because you, you were talking about how markets are doing and that kickoff. And you also talked about the equity markets. But look at the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ's positive on a year-to-date basis at this point. The NASDAQ 100 is. And what we see is that we're looking at tomorrow's unemployment claims number. Continuing claims are estimated to be almost 20 million people in this country, plus uh, all the initial claims that we'll see. I think it's 19 and a half million are expected on tomorrow's report. So uh, I do think that there's a big disconnect uh, between some of this economic data and financial markets. Now, we know markets are forward-looking in, in their nature, uh, but, but how do you reconcile those two things? This, this, you know, people are still saying that maybe first quarter GDP be slightly positive. The estimate here um, on it was, was negative, but a, a few weeks ago, people were talking about still being positive. Yeah, it's going to be significantly negative in the second quarter, uh, but we see this economic malaise continues. Um, how, how do you kind of reconcile these things right now? Yeah, and I think people are certainly going to be shell-shocked about it because just think about what this first quarter advanced print really captures. You know, it's the third, you know, first quarter, obviously, but in terms of when the safe at home measures really started in, in, in mass was, you know, you know, maybe the second or third week of March, right? So you're really just capturing the last two, maybe three weeks of the uh, the of the quarter for the coronavirus or COVID-19 in these negative numbers, right? So I think it, it comes as a bit of a shell shock to people. And bear in mind that negative 7.6 number that you're talking about for personal consumption expenditures. Effectively, you know, people have said that that accounts for about 70% of the U.S. economy. But I went on to the Bureau of Economic Analysis uh, page today, who is the one that puts out these GDP prints, and they have this nifty little table, uh, table two contributions to percentage change in real gross domestic product. Of that negative 4.8 GDP on a quarter over quarter senior, you know, uh, annualized rate, personal consumption expenditures accounted for negative 5.3% of that. So what offset some of that was really the gross um, or what the what further dragged that or helped that out a little bit was actually a reduction in imports. Um, you had some other measures that were slightly positive you know, across uh, areas of of goods, um, but overall, I mean, it just bears watching how much more negative this can drag things down. But coming back to your earlier question, it just seems like there's a little bit of optimism built into let's just say something like the Nasdaq, you know, which is showing positive prints here today, and you know, something like investment grade corporate credits, you know, a, a, as well. I just don't think people are really, you know, are, are for the most part, underestimating the effects that the COVID-19 will have on economic activity. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And then, um, you know, I think that what you've seen is that people are dusting off the old mantra in Fed we trust, right? Where yeah. the Fed is going to provide something, they're going to provide liquidity, they're going to provide backstops, the infamous Fed put, as people call it. And um, right now, it, it's at him. Um, you know, if, if you were the uh, if you were like the the new version of Rip Van Winkle and went to sleep for two months, woke up and you know you were a Nasdaq investor, you're like, 
wait a second. Uh, so we're up about a percent or so, um, at least on a year-to-date basis, a couple percent. Um, you know, un- uh, GDP just printed a negative number. Maybe we should be on recession watch. Wait a second. The unemployment claims there's there's over 20 plus million people unemployed right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, wait, what happened here? And so, um, you know, can you imagine going into the election in six months and, you know, people going to the booth? And we have an unemployment rate. And again, this is just postulating. It's not saying this is going to happen. But we had an unemployment rate in the mid-teens, or at least, let's say, double digits, at least 10% unemployed. Stock market's up 10 plus percent. Can you imagine how people are going to respond? Uh, you know, so I think that, you know, again, not not to be against capitalism and financial markets, but the the thing is here is there definitely is a disconnect between what's currently going on in the in in the economy versus what, how markets are pricing things. And again, maybe we're gonna we're gonna get a lot of data in the next few weeks. And that's why I wanted to bring Ken on here too, as we follow the housing market. I think it's very important to say that you know uh, there's a lot of optimism on the economy opening back up and getting back to work. But what the what the output capacity looks like in this post-COVID world versus pre-COVID, I think it's going to be completely different. And uh, I definitely can't wait to hear what Ken has to say about the housing market, too. But maybe, Sam, before we jump to Ken real quick, maybe you can talk, talk about the policies, uh, government policies that have uh, transpired in the last week or so. I think there was another uh, relief package passed uh, last week. Yeah, that's right. So the last time we talked, the Senate had just passed the their you know passed the the four hundred eighty four billion dollar relief package. Uh, the following, I want to say that two days after on on that Thursday of last week, the twenty third, the House followed up by approving it, and then the next day, President Trump signed it uh, for good measure. So the way that it was broken down for for everyone listening was you're getting about a increase of to the PPP uh, paycheck protection program of about 320 billion, which I think is sorely needed because based on news that we've heard, it didn't necessarily make its way into the wrong to the right hands. And you know, there's a lot of eyebrows raised as to which hands it went into. Uh, we won't we don't need to get into that necessarily in terms of names, but uh, there's an additional 60 billion for something that they called the Economic Disaster Loan Program, which is uh, also designed for small businesses, but also makes farms and ranches eligible eligible for these loans as well. And then finally, there is $75 billion for hospitals. Again, I'm sure sorely needed. I'm not even sure if that's enough. And then $25 billion for virus testing. Yeah, so um, there's more and more money getting thrown at this. Um, you know, uh, you've seen a lot of headlines out there with some of the abuses of these programs, too. Um, you know, things like uh, the Los Angeles Lakers uh, getting getting one of the loans there. At least uh, they were smart enough to give it back. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, also you're hearing a lot of things in these unemployment data where a lot of the workers who are uh, tip based where they make below minimum wage aren't eligible for some of these unemployment benefits. So there's a lot of challenges going on right now. The reason they weren't eligible is because they don't make enough money uh, to qualify for it and in, in their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I think it's important that um, you know, we continue to focus on these programs and see what their impact are. So one part of the market that's really been um, hit hard, or at least uh, there's been a perception of it, has been the mortgage market. I, I reference home sales being down. But Ken, um, you've been working in the mortgage market for, what, a decade and a half now. Um, maybe you can talk about some of the ideas that have transpired in the housing market. I recall early in this crisis, uh, the president using his uh, daily briefings to go out and tell people don't make mortgage payments and the like. And so um, that brings on the concept of like forbearance and things. So maybe you could talk about what's been happening in the market, 
what the policies have been announced and what what does forbearance mean not only just for like a homeowner or a renter but how does that transpire into some of the securities that are out there in the marketplace such as mortgage-backed securities how does that impact those as well so when we start with the definitions like what is forbearance and like how, how do people become eligible for it to begin with sure um yeah it's a it's a question that comes up a lot with investors and um i don't think that some of the policymakers really understood some of the decisions or things they were talking about and how that would have affected the whole kind of mortgage finance universe originators servicers all the all the plumbing in there um because early on right as kind of the COVID 19 issues started uh, uh coming coming to the us you know the trump administration was out there saying you know you're not going to have to pay your mortgage payments you know for months at a time perhaps and so if you were a mortgage investor you're thinking uh-oh is everyone going to not pay their mortgage all at once um because that can create a lot of problems um but forbearance isn't something new it's not something that um you know policymakers woke up and said hey let's try this forbearance thing this sounds like a good idea it's actually something that's been part of the mortgage market uh, for quite some time for uh, disasters like hurricanes. Um, and the FHFA has a hurricane uh, disaster relief plan, which is this forbearance, which basically is an agreement for the borrower uh, to not make payments for certain periods of time. And those missed payments aren't going to be uh, uh, reflected in their credit score. And then eventually they have to come back and they have to they have to make those payments back if they don't get to miss payments. So forbearance isn't forgiveness. It's just that the borrower misses payments for a certain period of time, up to 12 months typically, um, and then they've got to come back and make those payments up in, in a certain way, right? And okay, but that's important distinction though, right, Ken? Like you're saying here that forbearance is not forgiveness. That's right. And as an investor who's dependent on these cash flows, although maybe the cash flow mechanism that, that spigot's cut off, for a shortened period of time that you expect to make it up later. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And so the, the initial knee-jerk reaction was, uh, was oh, no, are, are government-guaranteed Fannie, Freddie, Jeannie Mae mortgages going to receive principal and interest if everyone's missing their mortgage payment? And there's a reason there was a, there's concern. So the way the mortgage system works is that if a borrower misses a payment, like goes into delinquency, Typically, the mortgage servicer advances the principal and interest um, until that mortgage, that defaulted mortgage, is typically bought out of the agency mortgage pools by Fannie Freddie, right? And usually, okay, so when you say they're bought out, just so that our listeners understand, what that means is you, as an investor, you, at that point, you end up receiving back the principal on that mortgage, right? Because the mortgage essentially bought, paid off, right? So that investor on an agency mortgage does not take the loss. The government is the one responsible for the liquidation and the loss associated with that asset. That's right. If you're in an agency mortgage, you're so you have guaranteed principal and interest. You get money back when a borrower just makes their normal mortgage payment, and the and the percentage of their amortization is principal. You get money back if a borrower sells their home or refinances. That comes back to you as a prepayment, and you get money back if a borrower defaults and inevitably the agencies buy that loan out of the pool you get that that default comes to you as a prepayment so you're not exposed to the losses you're exposed to that prepayment so depending on where you're invested that can be a benefit that could be a concern if you own an asset if you own an agency mortgage at a discount that prepayment could be to your benefit 
And if you own it at a premium, now you're concerned about that prepayment because you own a bond at let's say 105 and you don't, you want less people to prepay since you own, a, own an asset at a premium. And then if you own credit, now you're, now you're worried about um, those defaults. If you're, for example, in, in CRT, which stands for credit risk transfer, these are bonds that are backed by reference pools of agency mortgages. Um, now, you're, now you're trying to figure out what does this forbearance mean? What do increased delinquencies means on my bonds that are exposed to credit losses on agency loans? Okay, so let, let's get into some of the mechanics. So let's not maybe focus as deep on the CRT market, but what happens to your cash flow then as a mortgage investor on the credit assets? What, what happens to kind of the cash flow and the prepayment environment under that scenario? Hey, uh, Kenny, before you actually answer that, I think it may be helpful for most of our listeners if we can just have some definitions here. Um, I think most people are, are familiar with the originator. Those are the, the, the banks or, or the institutions that provide the, the loans to someone that is seeking to buy a house, the mortgage. But in terms of the servicer, what role, who is the servicer in terms of a homeowner and what is the servicer in terms of, uh, from the regard of the bondholder? What role does that servicer play? If you can just provide some context around that, I think it might be helpful for the conversation to evolve. Yeah, um, I'll take a step back and just, um, when, you, when an agency mortgage pool is created, there is a servicing strip. So if uh, the loan pool has, let's say, 4% coupon, there's a strip of, let's say, 25 basis points that is taken to pay servicing fees. And somebody owns that right. Somebody owns it's a, it's an asset, so banks can own it or originators can keep it. And then they service they they subservice that asset for a, a lower fee than that 25 basis points. Let's say it's maybe like five or six, and they hire a servicer. And the servicer's job is to keep in contact with all the borrowers that are in that mortgage-backed security and to collect their principal and interest payments and then remit those principal and interest payments to the bondholders. And so everybody that has a mortgage in America has a mortgage that's serviced by some servicer. It could be a bank servicer like Chase or Wells Fargo. It could be a non-bank servicer. And there's been a growth of non-bank servicing um, since the crisis, um, partly due to regulation that diminished the amount of servicing that regulators wanted the big banks to hold on their balance sheet. And then partly due to kind of the, the development of non-performing or re-performing loans, there's been a lot of kind of servicing platforms that have been set up. And so if you have an issue, you call your servicer and your servicer is going to try to help you work out your issue. So if you lost your job and you need some help on a temporary basis, if you want to get a loan modification, the servicer is who the borrower calls to deal with that issue, right? And the servicer has a contractual obligation um, to the, you know, either the trust if it's a mortgage-backed security or to whomever hired them in order to service um, those assets appropriately, whether it's by Fannie Freddie guidelines and or in the best interest of the trust. All right, I think that was good. Thanks, Sam, for bringing us back on topic there. Sometimes we, we get a bit ahead of ourselves and remember that uh, and don't remember that everyone doesn't have that intimacy with the mortgage market uh, that we do. Um, and so on that, I mean, most people don't think of the servicers as very integral to the process as you were laying this out. Most people don't even realize it's like, hey, I originated my loan with Wells Fargo. I mail this payment in every every month. I just assume that they're the ones behind everything. 
So how integral is the servicer in this process right now? And what are some of the implications of these policies right now? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're absolutely critical um, because they're the ones that are collecting the, the millions and millions of payments each month and making sure they go to uh, the Fannie, Freddie, Jeannie Mae bonds and or non-agency bonds and or whoever the end owner of those loans are. Maybe it's just a bank that owns, owns loans. And one of the things that they typically do, especially on agency mortgages, they have to advance principal and interest on missed payments. So there's always borrowers that are delinquent and in default, right? Um, usually it's because of unemployment or it's, I call it the three Ds, death, divorce, disease, um, which are other reasons people go into default. And so the servicer has to advance that principal and interest. But usually those, those delinquency numbers are pretty low. Right now, um, you know, prior to COVID-19, uh, the aggregate mortgage market was somewhere in kind of like the four and a half percent delinquent, right? And that's something the servicers can ma manage. If four and a half percent of their book is delinquent, they can manage it. They can advance that principal and interest. But what if what if there was this crazy scenario, right? When Trump administration went on TV and said everyone gets to miss their mortgage payment. If everyone stopped paying all at once, there's no way that they would go. All the servicers would go bankrupt. They just don't have the capital. To advance that PI. And that there was a moment in time, it was a brief moment in time, that that type of risk was out there because we didn't know what the what the number of borrowers that would request forbearance was. And so we didn't know what the burden on those servicers were. So the servicers and the mortgage industry was out lobbying heavily to uh, Washington. You probably saw on CNBC and the Wall Street Journal people talking about this risk to the servicers. Um, and that that risk that risk was huge until they came up with a couple things. And the the what happened was um, the FHFA came out and said, "Okay, servicers, you only need to advance four months of principal and interest, and then Fannie and Freddie will be on the hook." And then for Jeannie Mae mortgages, um, they they have a they have a, a, a facility to to fin help. The servicers finance those those assets. So that was the solution um, that drastically reduces the burden because otherwise borrowers can be in forbearance for up to 12 months. Um, so that's a near-term solution. There could be more stress down the line if the forbearance numbers increase, but that's been the near-term solution um, is for this the FHFA program to to change uh, to that four-month servicing uh, servicing advance window. Okay, got it. So how does this um, shake out in terms? So there's forbearance. So you, you own a bond that references these mortgage cash flows, these P&I, principal and interest each month. Now the homeowner is in forbearance. So let's just say three months, they're not making payments. How does that look for the life of this bond? What happens, um, not to be overly technical with it, but what happens to your cash flow? So the servicer advanced, what happens when that homeowner starts pay making payments again? How do the economics uh, work out on a go-forward basis? Yeah, I think the, the simplest way to think about it as an agency mortgage-backed security holder is you're trying to figure out, is there going to be a prepayment or is there not going to be a prepayment? You're going to receive that principal and interest. And if it was a default, that prepayment would come sooner. And if it's a forbearance, it may not lead to a default, which would be no prepayment, and or that default is going to be more back-ended. So let's say you wanted, you needed help, right? 
and you came to your servicer, you'd call your servicer, they'd initially work with you for uh, forbearance period of let's say six months, 180 days. And, and then um, if you, and you wouldn't have to take six months, you could just say, hey, I just need months help for two months because I'm gonna go back to work in, in, in two months. And you've got a couple of choices. The first is you, you totally make those payments up. So you would make, you'd make those two missed payments and your third month. And you'd, you'd go back to being, you know, being uh, current and life would go on. A lot of people can't do that, unfortunately. And so they'll get um, a, a repayment plan. And what they'll do is they'll take the missed payments and they can spread it up, spread it across, let's say 36 months. And your, your mortgage payment would go up a little bit and you'd make that up over 36 months. Um, and it would be capped at 150% of your original payment. That's a repayment plan. So the first option is reinstatement. You totally make up your missed payments. The second option is a repayment plan. You, you make up those payments over time. Um, the, the third option is what's called deferral. And that would be um, for agency, for Fannie Freddie loans, you can miss up to two payments and they defer that to the back of the loan, non-interest bearing, right? So they'll put it at the end of the loan. You don't have to pay interest on that anymore. And for now, that's, that's just for two months for, for uh, GDMA loans. And this is getting a little bit in the weeds. Um, you can do that for up to 12 months. So there's discussions right now. It hasn't happened yet, but there's discussions to maybe uh, change the Fannie Freddie deferral programs so you can defer up to 12 months payments, maybe six to 12 months payments to the back of the loan. The, all these things I just talked about, these result in no prepayment event, right? So if you're an agency yep. mortgage borrower, that's what you're, you're looking at. And if you can't do this because you're, you're, you're still struggling and you haven't gotten a job yet, perhaps, or maybe not making as much money as you used to, then you, you, you go to loan modification, which is you change the term of the loan. Maybe let's say 10 years have passed since you got the mortgage, you're a 20 year mortgage now, you can extend to 30 years and you can lower the coupon payment. That'll make the mortgage payment lower. Maybe that'll help the borrower uh, pay. That's gonna be a prepayment or the borrower just is gonna go through default and that's gonna come through as a prepayment. So it's all about figuring out how to work with the borrower. If you can get them to pay again through those different plans, it's not gonna be a prepayment, uh, but if it's a loan modification or a default, it's gonna be an inevitable prepayment into those mortgage-backed securities. Okay, so now let's take the other side of the coin. <clears throat> One of the markets that you really focus on for us these days at Double Line, the non-agency markets, these non-government guaranteed mortgages, what are the implications for this market? Um, because now when the borrower doesn't pay, it's no longer prepayment. So maybe you can go through the mechanics of what it looks like for a non-agency mortgage or non-government. Sure. Um, one of the, one of the, I guess, good things about um, for the mortgage market is this forbearance and loan modifications and dealing with uh, people that have challenges with um, cash flows. It's nothing new. And we saw this in, 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 in great amounts during the post-crisis era. For the last you know, decade, servicers have been modifying borrowers, working on forbearance plans. And so the systems, um, the technology, the, the training for the employees, all that stuff's in place. And we've actually seen periods of time when forbearance has happened, and it's, it's during these hurricanes. And um, you know, that's something that I, I've been talking about a lot is our experience with hurricanes, you know, one of the bigger ones going back pre-crisis was Katrina. 
And if you were a, a buyer of non-agency assets, what you would do is you would calculate the percentage of your pool that was exposed to the states that had the most exposure. So back then it was like Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, you know, parts of southeastern Texas, um, the panhandle of Florida. And you would, you would you know, figure out what that uh, exposure is, and then you would estimate that losses may be a little bit higher, at least the incomes will go higher. And what you typically saw during those uh, events was that, you know, right after the hurricane, delinquencies spike, borrowers typically go into forbearance. Um, and then as the economies open back up and things settle down, people go back to their jobs, they start making money again, and they start making their mortgage payments. And even more recently, there was a more extreme example of that because Katrina just hit a couple parts of the United States. So if you want to think about seeing an entire region get hit, uh, Puerto Rico is a good example. Puerto Rico, you had Hurricane uh, Maria. That was, I think, in 2016-17 time period. And we had a couple uh, securities that were backed 100% by Puerto Rico. So we got to experience the entirety of our loan population um, and what would happen. And um, the hurricane hit. It was a very bad hurricane. Uh, Puerto Rico was already struggling economically at that point in time. So perhaps that's an even better uh, case study for what's going on now. And our pool of loans in, a, in one bond that was 100% Puerto Rico, and these were pretty good borrowers, prime borrowers, is about 6 to 7% delinquent, which was in line with our expectations at the time. And then it spiked to about 25% in about two months, and, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. And, but what happened is though that number came down pretty dramatically uh, over the next two to three months, came all the way back down to uh, six to 7% again. So those borrowers missed a couple payments, um, but then the island opened back up and they went back to work and they started making payments again. So depending on how long uh, shelter in place continues and depending on how long the economy stays closed, that is a plausible scenario is for these spikes to happen and then for them to go back down. Um, and if you think about it, if you're if you own credit, it's you're better off missing a couple payments than having someone go through foreclosure and default, right? And so that's what's going to happen for all these non-agency bonds is you're going to see a spike in that those forbearance numbers, those delinquency numbers, because forbearance comes through as a delinquency, but then they'll, they'll go back down. And and we got really aggressive. We owned the entirety of that bond. So we went to the servicer and we told the servicer, don't even ask the borrower if they can make up those payments because most of them won't be able to. Immediately, let's go to the deferral process and defer those that those missed payments, two to three payments, whatever they were to the back of the loan. And that got those, those borrowers current again pretty quickly. And another interesting tidbit is while the borrowers may be in forbearance, some of them still end up making payments because they know they're going to have to make the payments up at some point in time. So preemptively, they're coming to ask for this help, but they may decide, hey, I just want to make these payments because I don't want to have to owe it, owe it later on. Okay. And then, the, <clears throat> so, so when you're thinking about the playbook here, that experience from like the hurricanes really helped give you a playbook as you're trying to negotiate what this new policy looks like, right? Yeah, I mean, that, I think, like, I think the again, the broader mortgage market. We saw um, in the credit side, there was a lot of um, uh, price action to the downside. I think less of it was about uh, forbearance and the concerns around 
um, default. There's clearly some pockets of the market, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but more of what dri drove a lot of the, um, the price action and pain was deleveraging. If you follow the mortgage REIT sector, which are public equities um, like Annalee and AGNC and Redwood and Two Harbors, which are names I'll just throw out there if you, so you can uh, look them up if you want. But um, that mortgage REIT sector, both residential and commercial, got hit really, really hard. These are uh, public companies that take the equity capital, they invest in mortgage-backed securities, and they use leverage. And so as prices fell, uh, these entities and some hedge funds and, and other investors too got hit in the same way. They got um, they would get margin calls. They would have to uh, sell assets at a bad time. Those assets were being sold into a marketplace where largely Wall Street across many sectors wasn't providing liquidity in March, um, partly due to inability, partly due, due to unwillingness. Um, and that caused this vicious cycle of lower prices, more margin calls, more forced sales, lower prices. So that's really what uh, hit the, the non-agency mortgage assets um, and the commercial mortgage-backed security assets pretty hard was that deleveraging. Since then, they've rebounded uh, pretty dramatically from their March lows. Um, they haven't rebounded to their previous tights because they're one, they're one of the assets that are off the uh, list of what the Fed is, is buying and are indirectly supporting through their financing activities. Yeah, so on that note, too, uh, so you, you've started to see some of the remittance data. How does it look like in your assessment? Uh, how many people were making their mortgage payments, let's say, in the month of March or their April 1 mortgage? Uh, and what does it look like, you know, kind of in your estimates going forward? And how did that how did that kind of set with your expectations when you were sitting in the middle of those price uh, dislocations and that forced liquidation in the market? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, while all the price dislocation was happening, we didn't have any data because we have to wait to the end of the month to get data. And even the data we have thus far, it's slightly backwards looking um, in the sense that in some ways how delinquencies are reported, you don't see it for two months. You need to have like two months of missed payments till it's reported as a, as a delinquency. But if we just look at the forbearance numbers, they're actually... Um, for agency loans, they're, they're a little better than I expected. Um, and agency loans, Fannie and Freddie are higher quality. And these are borrowers that put money down, probably have a little bit more savings. Um, and we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk a little bit later about kind of why um, homeowners are probably in a better spot than renters from an economic standpoint and what that means for um, mortgage credit. But if we look at forbearance um, through the end of, uh, I think, last week, the Fannie Freddie number was about five and a half percent. GDMA, which is a little bit lower quality loans, lower FICO score, higher loan to value, was higher as expected. That was close to 10%. It was in the high nines. Um, the average depository institution, so those are kind of your money center banks, kind of seven to eight percent forbearance, not private label securities, a mix between higher quality and lower quality, about seven and a half percent. Um, so that's, it's kind of like, call it six to 7% seems to be the number. And then as, as you go into kind of a uh, little bit more dented loans, like re-performing loans, these are borrowers that um, at one point in time, they were in, in default and or in foreclosure, but they worked with their servicer to get a loan modification. Um, these are savvier borrowers. Like these borrowers are chronically working with their servicers to try to miss payments, to try to get lower payments. And so forbearance numbers there 
are significantly higher. Let's call it 15% to even 25% in some instances. And the highest that we're seeing are self-employed borrowers. They may have really good credit scores, but it makes sense because that's small business. That's that self-employed borrower. Those are the people that are getting hit the hardest right now um, are, are those small business owners that don't have the W-2s, right? And so I think that, that we have to wait to see how, how things get uh, things get worse or better uh, through next months. But at least at least there's a game plan for our sector as far as how we can potentially deal with the, 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 the trouble of the borrower. And I think that, that that's going to bode positively for home prices. I'm not saying home prices are going to go up. I'm just saying they'll go down less because we're not going to have a flood of supply like we did during 2008 and nine. Right. So, so far you've addressed kind of the the residential housing market in terms of mortgages. What about the rental market? I know I know there's a part of the CMBS market that focuses on multifamily housing. How um, how has that market be behaved, and how does that compare to what you're seeing in the kind of mortgage market? Sure. Um, yeah, there was, I mean, again, there was a moment in time when everyone was sitting around thinking about the potential doomsday scenarios for residential mortgages. It was everyone misses their mortgage payment, which turned out not to be the case, clearly. Um, and then if you were looking at multifamily, you could sit around on a, on a Sunday and drum up a scenario. Well, hey, if the renters look at all the rich homeowners that get to miss payments, why am I paying rent? <laughs> and why? And there was, you know, there's people protesting um, up in Northern California outside their apartment buildings with, you know, rent protests and things like that. Um, and that was definitely a concern. But actually, the data came in way better. And so we got we, we looked at a bunch of data that came in from um, different equity REITs and different property managers out there. And I think the national collection rate for rents was about 88 percent. And that's nationwide. Right. And then if you looked at more urban centers where there's more employment, typically, um, that was 95%, which was it's pretty good. And then if you look at the different types of multifamily, so class A, so higher priced, higher quality um, multifamily units versus class B versus class C, there's definitely class A outperforming class B, outperforming class C. And it, and it makes sense because the higher price units um, are probably more white collar jobs that have uh, more steady cash flows that aren't, um, um, you know, uh, type C type, uh, class C multifamily. These are going to be people that are more hourly wage workers. So they're more affected right now because of uh, the shutdown in, in retail and hospitality and, um, um, you know, the, the, the restaurant industry and things like that. That's also why, why housing, um, re- single family housing, seems to be um, a relatively interesting spot from a credit standpoint. Because if you think about the homeowner, to buy a house, you have to put money down. Um, So you have to have saved money. So on average, homeowners have more savings. They typically have higher median income if you look at the data. And another interesting thing is because mortgage rates have been so low for such a long time now, let's just say that over the last decade because of quantitative easing and things like that, homeowners have been paying down a lot of principal on their mortgages. So the amount of equity in homes is at like the highest it's ever been, right? The amount of uh, homeowners equity is very, very high. So all these things put together mean that 
borrowers are less incentivized to walk away from their home. Home prices are driven by supply and demand, right? And what caused prices to go down so much in 08, 09 was massive supply. You had, you had really lax underwriting, right? Which led to home ownership rates going in from like the mid 60s all the way up to 69%. We're back down to 65% right now. And so anybody could get a mortgage. You had no income, no documentation type mortgages. You could borrow 100%, even 120% against your house. And then there was huge overbuilding of homes by all the home builders. So take all that and then throw in the wave of foreclosures and there was way too much supply, right? Um, now, if you look at supply, we haven't really been building homes, at least lower priced homes, kind of median home priced homes in America. We've been building multifamily since the crisis. We've been building higher end homes. In fact, even before COVID-19, the inventories of available home for sales was at like 35 year lows, basically the lowest that it's been since that, that data statistic has been calculated. And that means there's, there's not that much supply. Add forbearance, so there's gonna be, you know, you're not gonna have this flood of foreclosures into the market. Um, and foreclosures are also at kind of like an all time low right now, um, 35 year low, less than 1%. So that there's not gonna be this flood of supply yet. Clearly if unemployment stays elevated and things get worse from an economic standpoint, eventually you'll see homes hit the market. But we don't have that supply there. And then interestingly enough, there's a story you can spin on the demand side. Um, there's been this big theme of urbanization over the last decade. People basically not wanting to live in the suburbs and have these long commutes because you know oil prices were high and gasoline prices were high. And let's move into the city and I wanna be close to restaurants and I wanna, be, I wanna walk to work. And, and that was a big theme for the last 10 years. That's why multifamily building was so, um, so strong. But that could like, is the, is the shift going to go the other way? I mean, anecdotally, I've been talking to some friends that live in Connecticut. You couldn't sell a home in Connecticut, you know, four months ago. And now that they're flying off the shelf because people that live in cities and live in uh, these dense areas are, are fleeing to the suburbs. So I think there's good, the demand side, it's going to be, it's going to be regional. Like there's pockets of places that you'll probably see actual increase in demand for single family homes. Um, um, but that's going to be places near urban centers and near work, places that are like, you know, um, uh, vacation centers like Palm Springs in, in California, for example. I mean, it just seems like it's hopeless for areas like that. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about kind of Airbnb investors, people that were buying homes to like rent them out. And they're all they're all in huge trouble right now because there's no demand. And I mean, that type of stuff. That, so it's very regional. I think I think there's the supply is low. Demand, I think, is clearly going to drop because of uh, you know unemployment going higher. But um, there was good pent up demand for people wanting homes, and I think a pullback in prices maybe actually gets people to transact. So I think prices drop; they can drop five, ten, maybe fifteen percent in some areas. Um, but uh, I think that there's probably a decent buyer base, given what's happening with COVID nineteen, and then mortgage rates being pretty low. So on that note, Ken, let's uh, bring it back to investing because that's great background. I think, you know, to me, you know, th that helps kind of explain what's going on, why people still want to invest these securities. So what is the opportunity set in mortgages today? Um, you talk about the potential for there being some house price depreciation. 
How are you thinking about that when building portfolios for our clients? How are you thinking about uh, getting exposure to different areas of the mortgage market? What's attractive today? And what can investors expect on that? Again, given the uncertainty around, you know, uh, closing down these, you know, uh, what do we call it? Safer at home policies, opening the economy back up the stage, kind of roll out. How, how are you thinking about that when it comes to the investing side? And where do you see kind of the opportunity set today? Yeah, you know, pr prices have rebounded a good amount, but um, there's still prices a lot of, of the securities off the lows is what you're saying. That's right. Yeah, prices of non-agency securities have come off the lows, but because they're not part of the the things that the Fed buys or indirectly supports through these programs, they're not back to their previous kind of tight levels. And so, um, if you look at kind of the, the the two parts of the market, there's what we call legacy non-agency. These are bonds that uh, we've been longtime investors of at Double Line. Um, they're bonds from the pre-crisis era. Um, what's interesting about those assets right now is most of them are, are what are called pass-throughs. So they used to be the AAAs, and there's no more subordination left. And so they, you're basically buying a, a securitized pool of loans. And because you don't have a, a capital structure to it, where you have this kind of waterfall of, of principal coming down from the top down, losses coming from the bottom up. There, if, you, if you had been buying those bottom securities during the crisis, you got totally wiped out, right? You have this, this cliffy type profile where if losses get to a certain point, if they're say less 2% loss, you're okay. And if they're 4% loss, you're totally wiped out. That type of profile is very binary. But when you're buying a pass-through, you can go from, let's say a base case, I think 20% of the loans will default and I get a six yield there. And if double that defaults, I don't go from a six yield to a negative 100 being totally wiped out. I go from a six yield to let's say a four yield. So it's a very flat, what we call a flat yield profile. That paper um, at the tights was probably inside a 3% yield. That widened dramatically to call it, call it eight to 10 during the heart of darkness in mid-March. And that's kind of around a five yield right now. And if 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 you if you're an insurance company, you can actually buy that bond that's below investment grade. And because of some um, some implementation by the NEIC, which governs insurance companies, they they put a rating methodology in place for these bonds that even though they're below investment grade, if they're at a certain dollar price, then these insurance companies can buy them and they can call them AAA, right? And the, what would they say? Okay, here's this bond. It's backed by this pool of loans, we think there's going to be 10% loss. So if you buy a bond at that bond at 90, you're going to get 90 back. And that's kind of like buying a triple A. If I pay 90 and I get 90 back, I got my money back. That's like buying a triple A. So if you buy it at or below 90, you can call it investment grade. And so even though the Fed isn't directly buying non-agencies, what they are buying is investment grade corporate bonds. And investment grade corporate bonds are now a sub three yield, right? And yep. there's downgrade risk there. And an insurance company looks at that and says, okay, maybe I'll buy some corporate bonds, but I can buy these non-agency bonds. They're already downgraded and I'm picking up 200 to 300 basis points of spread over corporate bonds. And that, that's exactly what they're doing. And so that bid from the insurance companies has helped to drive the spreads in. And I think they can drive the spreads in more. So that's one pocket of opportunity. And that's something that we own um, in, in a good amount in many of our, many of our strategies. Um, that's kind of the old stuff. We call that legacy non-agency. Then there's the new stuff, all the new securitizations that have been created 
um, since the crisis. Didn't really start picking up steam until around 2013 and 14. And so you can buy bonds back. I, I kind of break it out into uh, three to four different subsectors. One are new originated loans, and they could be jumbo loans. They could be what's called non-QM or non-qualified mortgages, basically loans that don't fit the agency profiles and or the prime profiles. And then there's CRT, credit risk transfer, which are um, Fannie Freddie loans, and you buy the bottom 5% credit risk from Fannie and Freddie. That's something we largely don't have exposure to at Line. We have probably less than a percent exposure to it. And that was the hardest hit because it's um, at the very bottom of the capital structure. And it has that kind of cliffy nature I talked about earlier, where if losses are 1%, you're okay. But if losses are 2%, you're totally wiped out. And so that's been, that was the hardest hit part of the non-agency market. Um, that area could be interesting down the line, but I think you need to wait for more data to come through. I, I want to see, I want to have more clarity on the economy. I want to have more clarity on forbearance and how bad those numbers get. And so that's yeah. that's something that we think may be an opportunity, but it, we think it's too early. Yeah, you and me both uh, would love to see more data. I think that's the thing we clamor for. We're waking up early in the morning to look at all these economic releases and data sets, just saying, okay, well, how can we update our thinking today? Um, so with that, um, you know, we're getting up on time, Ken, but I want to ask you one more thing, too. Uh, a lot of investors, when they saw this happen like five or six, seven weeks ago, when we started to see declines in these assets and securitized being hit the hardest, because you mentioned not either direct or indirect support from the Fed. A lot of people were asking me, and these are clients and prospects out there, like, is this the same thing as two, 2008 all over again? Is it the mortgage problem? The mortgages are the center of it. Um, how are you thinking about that? And how does this compare this current environment to what we saw back in uh, the housing crisis? It really started late 06, but really accelerated massively in 08 and 09. Uh, and it's, it's very different. Um, the price drop was, you know, you could say it was similar to some extent, except it took like 12 to 18 months for prices to drop 30 to 40 points. And here you saw prices drop on certain assets in a matter of 10 business days. Um, which was a wild, wild ride. But I mean, there you had you had very bad underwriting going into 2007 and 8. You had oversupply of homes. You had speculation on homes. You know, people, you know, people out there owning like five, six homes, trying to flip them and things like that. All that, all that's gone, right? So you you went into this with very low unemployment. You went into this with very high quality underwriting. You went into this with, uh, um, you know. Uh, lack of supply. And so it's a very different setup. Um, but what I think why structured products got hit hard outside of kind of the technicals with the read leveraging is that one of the things that attracted people to them was the diversity of cash flows and the diversity of uh, the pool of loans not being exposed to like an IOU, like a corporate credit, right? It's just you have just this company and they got to pay or they won't pay. Or here you have all a mix of assets but you're in this weird situation with COVID-19 where there was brief moments of time when people thought, what if, you know, you have this pool of lo mortgage loans and everybody stops paying. And that uncertainty has created a lot of volatility. Um, that uncertainty is subsiding, which is why you're seeing spreads come in on a lot of different parts of that securitized product market. And so where the spreads aren't coming in, it's either because there's no support from the Fed and or that uncertainty 
is still around. And so commercial has gotten hit really hard. Um, and if you look at commercial, the best performing kind of assets and the, and the ones that have the least concern, first off is industrial. Industri industrial is like the tech stock of real estate. It's just been on a tear, you know, partly because of the tech companies like Amazon that are using them. So, so industrial has held up really well. Multifamily is number two because there's less uncertainty around it. People need a shelter in place somewhere. They're going to shelter in place in their house or their apartment. And then as you go to, as you go to like commercial and then retail and lastly hospitality, that uncertainty of what's going to happen gets worse and worse and worse, right? Hospitality clearly being the worst um, because when are people going to want to go, you know, stuff themselves up in a hotel with a thousand people in Vegas, right? And in retail, it's about when are people going to want to go out to the malls and, and pack themselves inside inside malls. Uh, commercial is kind of a mixed bag. It, it's very regional, like uh, any place that's heavy in energy right now is struggling more, uh, like Houston. And But there, you know, companies still need space. There's an argument if you talk to real estate equity investors, because they're the best ones to talk to since they're long the risk, they're going to come up with a reason why prices shouldn't go down. Um, but if you look at a metric that's Square foot per employee. I think the number used to be like 350 square foot per employee. Um, that number has come down over the last decade to I think it's a number like don't quote me on this about 150 square foot per employee. And it's because we've been packing people in tighter into this kind of trading desk co-work space. And so uh, the commercial real estate investors say, well, because of COVID-19, that's going to go away, or there's going to be less of that. So even if companies don't have all their employees at the office, they're going to still need the office space because there's not going to be these big trading desks, workspaces. And that's something that for us is very close to home, right? Are people really yeah. going to want to go sit three feet from each other? And so that there could be some support for, for commercial, but, you know, uh, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, Gorman, was out a couple of weeks ago on CNBC saying, I don't know if we need so much real estate. This work from home thing, it's, it's working. Yeah, yeah, that reminds me of that uh, infamous Stanford, Connecticut, UBS trading desk, right? Like the largest trading desk in the world that just still sits there empty to this day. It was like uh, right before the end of the bull market and in the uh, early aughts, right? That's right. That's right. And if you're taking the train to the city from Connecticut, you you, you go right by it. It still has a yep. UBS sign on top. Yeah. So, Ken, let, I, I hate to cut you off, but um, we need to stop here in the interest of time. Um, it's been awesome. Um, you know, maybe when we get a little more remit data in another month, we'll pull you back on and give you an uh, update and get into more some more details. And I'll give our listeners some time to to posit some more questions in your direction. But thanks for the update there. I think this is helpful. Uh, it tells you the intricacy and in, of what we're doing here at Double Line and thinking about these uh, very important parts of the market. So I appreciate you taking the time with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. But before you leave, uh, Sam has to do his favorite part of the show. I know he loves his uh, his market and economic recaps, but before we leave, we got to give you the Sherman says. Uh, so that favorite part of the Sherman said is Sherman says. So Kenny, it's been a while since uh, you've been on here. So as a refresher to you, the rules of the road are: I will offer a series of prompts, alternating between Sherman and yourself to which you'll provide a top of mind response. So we'll skip start it off with a word for or a term for Mr. Sherman, meat processing plants. 
sounds disgusting when you say it like that, uh, but uh, critical MVP. for our non-vegans. All right, and to uh, Mr. Shinoda, short-term home rentals. Think uh, VRBO or Airbnb. Yeah, um, I feel bad for those uh, bankruptcy. <laughs> uh, rainy day fund. Necessary. Unemployment benefits. Going higher. Central bank capabilities. You had to put capabilities in there, didn't you? Mm -hmm. um, or I could say capacity. Finite. Antibodies. Everyone needs them. <laughs> Municipalities. Everybody needs them. Home price appreciation. A thing of the past. Haircut. I need one. Trojans. Need a new coach. All right, and that wraps it up for Sherman Says. All right. Well, you see when uh, when Lau does it, our listeners, that it's a lot shorter than when uh, we bring in Kimbro uh, to do it. So, again, thanks to Ken Shinoda. Appreciate your insights. Uh, Ken, let's mark it on the calendar to bring you back in about four or five weeks to do this again because I'm sure there's going to be a lot more development. So, again, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks to all the listeners out there. Remember, you can follow us on the Twitter our Twitter handle is at Sherman Show Pod. We'll put some nice charts about some of the stuff Ken was talking about today. We'll keep you posted on some of our thinking and tune in for next week as we continue our safety at home uh, Sherman uh, Show podcast. So take care, everyone. Be safe, be healthy, and speak soon. Thanks again. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.